At bestvolleyballvideos.com, we have over 150 hours of training videos developed specifically for the youth and high school age volleyball player. Please go to bestvolleyballvideos.com. A few years ago when the uh, New England Patriots were dominating football and winning Super Bowls, it seemed like almost every year, uh, their coach Bill Belichick was uh, quoted as saying often in practice, just do your job. And the title of this podcast is Know Your Job, Do Your Job. And I think one of the things that um, we as coaches, volleyball coaches, need to understand is the, the total amount of work that needs to be done for our teams in terms of skill development in all other areas as well. But more importantly, our players, the total amount of work our players need to undertake to make sure that they're maximizing their ability to do their job at the highest level. And each position on the volleyball court requires learning to execute certain skills under certain situations. And um, when I first started coaching back in in the 1980s, I knew that to have a quality program, we were going to have to have a great setting because setting is, is the... Uh, the light switch that makes the entire the entire uh, engine run, and so one of the things that I did was I watched a lot of video on setters, watched a lot of setters live, and also studied a lot of books and drill manuals and things like that about setting. And one of the things that uh, I noticed was that the demands placed on setters in competition uh, were distinctly different than what I saw setters going through when they were training in practice. And by that, I mean the, the training for setters back then was, was pretty standard. There wasn't a lot of individual setter training. Uh, there wasn't a lot of the drills that you see today. There wasn't a lot of the, the footwork patterns you see today. You know, setters were pretty basic. Uh, they played a lot, but there wasn't a lot of specialized training for the setter position. But if you watched the game of volleyball back in the 80s, at any time, and in the course of a match, you would see that uh, the setter had to make all kinds of different moves with his or her body. You know, they would have to go off one leg. They would have to set sideways. They would have to set falling away. They would have to run and jump around a ball. Uh, Those are all the things that setters had to do when they played. But you didn't see setters training those movements in practice uh, at, at a high level. You just didn't see it. So uh, one of the things that we did was uh, right away, is the thing I looked at was what are all the things that a setter, and then you have to break this out to every basically position, but at that point in time it was what are all the movement patterns and all the skills that have to be executed, what are those all those that occur during competition at some point in some time you know, and then at that point, you figure out, then how do we train those movement patterns to create muscle memory and also allow our setters and, you know, as we move forward, all our positions to be more comfortable in those situations because the body will remember what it does on a regular basis. And, you know, it's not a lot different than you've heard me talk in the past in a different podcast about Pete Maravich in basketball, who he changed the game of basketball. I mean, he just, he played the game at a much, much higher level uh, with his skill. Uh, he became, he let his athletic ability, um, you know, morph into, you know, just phenomenal ball handling skills and passing skills. And he was a great shooter. 
but you know he basically took his position or his his craft as a basketball player and honed it and refined it and allowed it to take him so much farther than it might have otherwise because he was able to do so much with the basketball because he had spent so many hours, hundreds, thousands of hours working with the ball to have phenomenal ball handling skills. He was a great shooter. He was a phenomenal passer. But those were all individual repetitive skills that he had worked on uh, in a practice environment or an individual environment outside of gameplay. And so, you know, then after Pete Maravich in the late 60s, early 70s, Magic Johnson came along and, you know, just built on everything that Pete Maravich had done and, you know, ch- uh, continued to evolve in the game of basketball, you know, continued to evolve. And, and as I've talked in the past, is a much different game than it was before. And I want to st- talk in this podcast about looking at volleyball kind of in the same manner about the way we address the skills. And the first thing I want to do is I want to look at basic fundamentals as a foundation um, not relevant to a position, but just what kind of skills do your players have a, as a volleyball player? And the goal of the sport of volleyball is that the ball will continue to cross the net almost uh, an unlimited number of times if everybody executes each skill at a high level. And so I'm going to give you a four-part skill test, and I, I'm going to urge all of you uh, who have coach players that you know probably are – know eighth grade or higher and if you feel like your kids have decent skill I'm gonna I'm gonna urge you to look at this four-part skill test and and this is foundation work that then you start training and building on and allows what it does it allows your players uh, to accelerate their growth at a much higher pace if there's a foundation of skill if you're not starting over every day because players can't execute it all and and here are the four skill tests that that I would ask you to do the first one is cross-court setting because any time a ball, uh, a first contact is passed or dug, you know, the next ball is going to go to an attacker because you're trying to get a, a third ball kill, which is a direct point. And so one of the things that you want to ask yourself is if your setter digs the first ball on your team, uh, is everybody on your team capable of setting a hittable ball to the left front or the right front position? And so... Uh, you know, a cross-court setting to targets or attackers in left front or right front. To me, that's the first That's the first skill test. Every player on your team should be able to set a ball, a hittable ball, to the left front and the right front antenna. I'm not talking about a quick set. I'm not talking about back row timing and tempo. But every player on a, on a regular basis, 75, 80, 90 percent of the time, if a ball gets dug up or passed up in the middle of the court, should be able to step in and set a ball cross court. That's one of the foundations of volleyball. And um, so that's the first test. The second test is a drill that we call two-contact pepper. And everybody knows what pepper is. It's dig, set, hit, which is three contacts back and forth. But in two-contact pepper, and I'll just use distances, you put uh, one player at the 10-foot line or the three-meter line, put the other player on the end line, and one player will hit to the other player about 50-60%, not full speed. But one player will hit and one player will dig. There will be no setting in between. So if, if the one player is hitting, the other player is digging right back to the player who continues to hit back. So it's dig, hit, dig, hit, dig, hit. So what this requires, it requires extremely good underhand platform to dig the ball back to the attacker so the attacker can attack right back to you again because there's no there's no third contact or there's no second contact which is a set to reset the drill 
So, you know, we run this drill in normally 10 reps at a time. So, and we keep, it continues going. Players don't trade places. They just stay where they're at. So let's say at the 10-foot line, you've hit 10 balls in a row. The person on the end line has dug 10 balls back to you. And then after that, the person on the end line hits 10, and the person at the 10-foot line digs 10 back. And again, this isn't full speed, full power, but it means that you have the ability with your platform to direct the ball back to a specific area under control on a regular basis. And as an attacker... Or you know you have the ball, you have the ability to spin the ball with hand contact between the knees to the person in front of you who's about six meters away, and we'll start with we'll start with you know a twenty foot a pepper about six meters in line to ten foot line. That two contact drill requires a lot of skill, okay? And you know we've we we've done it in practice for years, and I think two or three years ago we had uh, one of our setters and one of our outside hitters. Uh, they went till I think they got a, between 180 and 200 dig hits right in a row without the ball stopping, without having to shag one ball. And so two-contact pepper is um, it, 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 it's an indicator of precision skill, and it, it's a good indicator of just basically underhand ball control. So that's the second test. The third test is a drill that we call shot maker. And shot maker looks like what you would call a jump serve. It's normally uh, a three-step. A move. So if I'm a right-handed hitter, I normally go left, right, left. I toss the ball up and I go left, right, left, and I jump and spike. And the shot maker, the shot maker drill, I want you to look at your kids. I want them to be able to hit the ball from six meters, which means it's about 20 feet back. So start on the end of the, end of the court, toss it up, take three steps. You can jump and spike the ball over the net. And, you know, regular, on a regular basis, let's say you can do eight out of 10 times or nine out of 10 times, but you can jump, toss the ball up, take a three-step approach, jump and spike the ball over the net. You also do it from three meters, which means you're jumping from the 10-foot line, you know, forward like a back row attack. And then you jump and spike at the net. So the shot maker drill is from six meters, it's from three meters, it's from one meter. And again, it's it looks like a jump serve because normally it's a three-step approach, but you toss with your hitting hand, toss it up, take three steps, regular spiking, but you're self-tossing. So now you can basically, your players can all teach themselves to spike. And this shot maker drill can be elaborated to the point where you're hitting out of the back row to targets in the corners. You're hitting from the left side, sharp cross quarter down the line. You're hitting from the right side, sharp cross quarter down the line. You know, again, you're hitting all the back row positions. But what this does, it... It means that you can control an attack over the net on a regular basis. And when you're, and I'm talking about every position. I'm talking about Libros. I'm talking about setters. I'm talking about everybody can jump and spike the ball over the net. Again, just don't have to hit the ball hard, but you have control. And the reason we want everybody to be able to do this is because you want your Libros to have great hand contact and hand control uh, because they should be good in pepper, good in defensive drills. They can get on boxes and hit balls at each other uh, when they're training their defense. Uh, we put our Libros up on boxes, and our Libros are the hitters and blocking drills, so our coaches can coach blocking. But you want everybody to be able to jump and spike. So the third drill is the shot maker. And the fourth drill is can you consistently serve a ball over the net below the top of the antenna to put the ball in play? So if I go back and look at this four-part this four part skill test, cross-court setting, two-contact pepper, shot maker over the net, consistently serve, I'm going to go back and say that very few teams have very few players who can execute all these skills 
at a high level. Now, these aren't specialized skills. These are basic fundamental volleyball skills. So in basketball, it would be dribble, pass, and shoot. Um, you know, in baseball, it would be hit, throw, catch. Uh, but I'm going to guess that you as coaches, play, your players are so specialized uh, that they don't have the basic fundamentals to execute all four of these skills on a regularly consistent basis. That means, you know, 80% or more on target and setting, uh, two contact pepper back and forth, 20, 30, 40 balls in a row before you have to shag one. Shot maker, every t 10 times you toss, you're going to hit eight over the net. And a lot of times you're going to find out your players can't literally can't toss and hit because they can't control their tosses. And then the serving. And so if you can execute these four skills and you put a group of players on the court who can all do these four skills, uh, they're going to be able to play volleyball. You have the foundation of a skilled group of players that can then begin to train and specialize by positions. But again, I'm going to I'm going to urge you to take one of your practices and see how many of your players can execute all four of these skills at the same time. So I'm going to guess it's pretty low, um, just because I've been around the game long enough to see it. But I think that's one of the things that the the foundation level for all-around skill is really vital because you build on your specialized skills from that foundation. And um, the foundation skills are crucial. And I, I don't know how many of you, uh, I think it was last year, uh, there was an interview of Haley Washington, who's a middle on the USA women's national team. And, and she was asked about the differences. I think the USA had lost to maybe Serbia or somebody, but she was asked about the differences between her and, and some of the other top middles in the world. And and she just point blank said that that their overall skill set was different than hers. Uh, since when she was young, she had never worked on defensive skills or setting skills or serving skills. You know, she was a, a great young middle blocker, but she blocked and she hit. She didn't do all the other things that volleyball players normally do because she didn't play back row. And so at the international level, you know, where the middles have to serve and play one rotation in the back row, other teams are able to take advantage of someone who might be lacking in certain areas. And I thought it was a great observation by her. I mean, she was very blunt uh, and also really honest about the differences in the training of young players which are, are in other countries around the world, which we've talked about in the past. I've talked to you about the, the concepts that we play too much and practice too little. And, you know, as we get into this podcast about, about position training, you know, I think that's going to come out. But one of the things that you need to know is each position has a unique skill set. And then when that skill set is maximized and it's meshed together with all the other positions, that's when you create a great team. And often uh, coaches spend a little time on actually breaking down and understanding the total list of demands of what each position in all situations require. And I think the one thing that I would suggest every coach do is, you know, take out a piece of paper Take each position, uh, write each position down on a notebook or, you know, on your notes or whatever, and then list all the possible actions of that position, you know, and, and anything that might, anything that might occur in competition in that position, anything that might occur, not what normally occurs, but anything that might occur. And um, just in terms of motor skills and movement function, what things do you have to do? And then I think from there, you basically have a roadmap uh, for what you want to do to replicate all those actions and to best, you know, best prepares each player in your team for f uh, future competition. And, you know, from there, the next step is to identify the players by positions. And if a player who is in that position has the ability and the mindset, to be honest with you, to do all the work that's needed for the team to be successful. 
And the first thing a coach should do is internally, internally, looking at this from a 100% negative point of view. And, and, in, and by negative, I mean, where are all the areas this player will struggle? How much will those struggles damage the mission of your team? And are those individual weaknesses by that player fixable or possibly can they even be turned into strengths? That's the first thing you look at when you start putting people in positions. Always look at everything from the bottom up, not the top down, uh, because your weaknesses will always come back to be your weaknesses. They will hurt you. It's how you're going to give up points. You know what your strengths are going to be. You know how you're going to score points. But ultimately, it comes down to giving the other team as few unearned points as possible. And I think some coaches at times, you know, struggle to teach skills to players. And I think for these coaches, it's easier sometimes just to change players. And you see this in high school and club where coaches have limited training time. And so players who are limited in physical skills, maybe on the athletic side, but have a solid skill set or volleyball skills, a lot of times they will play ahead of more gifted athlete who doesn't you know, really yet possess the same skill set. And because the mistakes of that athlete are gonna make, that they're going to make short term are going to hurt the team. And, you know, this is a short-term vision by some coaches, and I refer to it as the win-now-lose-later mentality, and it really dominates youth sports. And often, a talented athlete who's physically gifted with the right training and some patience will develop into a superior player, especially in the point-scoring areas of attacking and blocking. Whereas the higher a team climbs the ladder of competition, the faster and more physical the level of play is going to be. And the players who aren't as physical, regardless of their skill set, are going to get left behind. And teams who were successful when they were young are no longer successful when they get older. And you see this a lot of times in club volleyball. You'll see a great 12 or 13 or 14-year-old team that just has mad skills. But, you know, their players aren't very big. They're not very physical. You know, as, those, as, the, as the ages get, as the age level increases, you know, those players who were 5'8 or 5'9 and dominating when they were younger are still 5'8 or 5'9 and they're getting run over by teams that are much more physical. So it's a little bit like the World, Little League World Series phenomenon where, you know, every summer the best 12-year-old baseball players in the world play in the Little League World Series. And, you know, those teams are great, but they're great 12-year-old teams. Very few of those players will ever play Major League Baseball. Uh, most of the players who play Major League Baseball, they're not the best players at 11 or 12 years of age. They're still developing physically, maybe involved in other sports. But it's one of the things that you have to look at. So one of the things that, that, that I want you to urge to take a look at is, is, is what I call RPRP, and that's repetition to polish. And so a, a lot of the polishing or the refinement of skills is going to be is going to be repetitive work and we've gone in the past and talked about repetitive work and block versus random and you know we're not going to delve back into it again but you know the thing that i think you just think about is the repetitive work you do has to mirror the actions and the order of actions as how they occur during competitions if you think about it from that way do it exactly how it happens when you play the game and then work closer and closer and closer to be at the speed of how it occurs in the game you know then you've you're on you're on the right track and so the first one is repetition to polish the second part is random to perfect and that's where gameplay and random you know random uh, play comes in is that really is the it's the top of the pyramid it's the it's the you know the cherry on it's just it's a cherry on the topping um but so much of your building blocks come from the repetitive work, 
but you, there's no question that you have to play competitive at a high level if you ever expect to succeed at a high level. So uh, re- repetition to polish, random to perfect. And I think this is different than some coaches who use only competition as the teacher of skills rather than competition should be the benchmark of what you've done in practice, what you have to continue to do in practice, the changes you might make in your practice gym. That's what competition tells you. And I think that's one of the things. And practice is where you teach and train, and competition is where you're able to evaluate and adjust what needs to be trained maybe moving forward. So it's one of the things to to think about as a coach. And I think if you understand each position demand, and then the next step is to understand your individual player's weaknesses in those positions, that's going to dictate your training plan as you go forward. And I think, you know, one of the things that you can look at in volleyball, let's say uh, you run a 5-1, uh, 5-1, one-setter system. You have, you have a, 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 what we call an M1 and an M2. You have what we call an L1 or an O1 and an O2. And you have the opposite. And, uh, you know, the M1 has different duties than the M2. The M1 in a 5-1 system is in the front row with a setter twice. There's a lot more slide, one-leg attack option options. The M2 is in the front row with a setter only once. They're hitting usually generally more in front of the setter. So right there, the demands of your position dictate what you'll work more on in practice, you know, and and so it's not just going to practice, but, you know, what's your plan for your M1 to develop and get better? What's your plan for your M2 to develop and get better? Your L1 and L2 or outside hitter, if, if you're in the 5-1, then your L1 and rotation 1 is going to pass on the right side. Probably hit right side uh, a lot of the time. So it may be a primary hitter over there. So, you know, one-third of the front row rotations, your L1 is hitting on the right, not the left. Your L2 probably in the 5-1 is going to stack in rotation 4. So your L2 is going to hit all three times on the left. So, again, that goes back to, you know, wh- how do I split my repetitions up in practice? You know, what do I do? for my L1 versus my L2. Same thing with setters. Do I run a 5-1? Do I run a 6-2? If I run a 6-2, what if I run a 6-2 and I have setters that hit? If I have setters that hit, where do they hit? Do they hit one time on the left and two times on the right? You know, there's a lot of things that you look at. It's important to understand the job duty of each one of those positions. So not only is the left side attacker a position, but the L1 versus the L2 is also a position. So the left side attacker has to dig cross court, cover the tip, you know, hit on the left, hit, out, hit off hands, hit high flat, hit sharp cross, be able to tip over the top. You know, if they're primary passers, they have to be able to pass. They have to block versus the other team's right side attack. They have to block versus the slide. They have to be able to play balls out of the net. I mean, there's all these duties for the left side position. But again, if you're an L1 who plays left side, you also play some on the right. So then you have to master the job duties of the right side uh, to be good enough to play over there as well. So that's another one of the things that you look at. So uh, I think we also, as volleyball evolves, we also see modifications of techniques as, as coaches and players work to find the best ways to be more efficient. And I think an example of that and, and we've seen is we've seen we've seen the evolution and the modification of swing blocking. And when swing blocking first started to creep into the women's game from the men's game, you know, it was pretty much all taught the same way. And, and, you know, some coaches embraced it right away. Some coaches didn't, but generally there was, there was a, so much of the swing blocking was footwork related and 
technique related of the arms and the players would basically run along the net max jump with their arms you know jump at maybe a 90 degree angle turn and get the hands over the net you know that was that was kind of the standard swing blocking uh, mo and then you know the evolution in swing blocking over the years has been you see now the middles uh, they do a lot of work with their elbows bent because the systems have gotten faster. Uh, as they move along the net, they're more like, you know, they're, they're working more to face the net or have their, have their shoulders at more like a 45-degree angle as opposed to a 90-degree angle so they can get across and get squared sooner. Uh, you see a lot of times now big right-side players don't really swing block. They just set the block up and let the middle come to them. Um, you know, they line up on the pin, get way over, try to get good touches as opposed to, you know, two people trying to coordinate a swing block move together, which sometimes requires a lot of timing. Uh, so you've seen a lot of modif- you've seen a lot of modifications within swing blocking. And so, you know, we continue to see that I- as we develop skills as well. So I think one of the things also is as a coach, spend the time on the skills that you have to be the best at and you have to prioritize those skills by positions. They're the most important for your team to be successful. Um, the, the skill of, and I'll use an example, the skill of attacking is by far the most important skill in relationship to being successful and to winning. So uh, everybody has to attack, make a, the attack a priority. But it's always not going to be a priority in terms of the time you spend on it because the attack is a dynamic, explosive, heavy load compression skill you know, you cannot go out every day and have a hitter hit two or 300 balls. I mean, it, that you wouldn't be able to hold up for, for very much time. So when you, look at, when you look at a skill like attacking and blocking, you know, you're going to modify how much you do it. You just want to maximize the results that you get out of it. And this is going to go, I'm going to talk in a little bit about, this is going to go to the intensity versus the volume issues that, that we have when we, when we teach skills. And, you know, intensity is when you do something at a really, really high level. And generally, attacking and blocking is something that's, that is high intensity. And then you have volume, which is your serve-receive, your defense, your serving, you know, your cross-court setting, things like that. You can put a lot more time into those skills because they're not nearly as, as compressive or as damaging on the body. So first and second contact skills generally take up a lot more time. Uh, but the high-intensity skills, the point-scoring skills, attack and block, are something that has to be worked on, you know, at, at highly high level, high difficult positions, uh, so you can train those at the highest level possible. So, uh, I think that's one of the things that you look at because if you look at the physical demands of an elite attacker, you know, hitting 40 or 50 balls in a practice at a high level, but a setter can set two or three, 400 balls easily. A passer can pass two or 300 balls, uh, dig two or 300 different types of balls. So that's where you look at the intensity versus the volume issues. And I think that's one of the things that as you, as you break down the job duty of each position and the job duty each player is going to have, you also have to factor, factor in, you know, the, the most important job duty of your outside hitters might be attacking for points, but they won't spend the greatest amount of time on it because, you know, that's going to break them down and it's going to, you're going to end up having negative results if you spend. So it's not always the importance, the, the most important things don't always require the most time. They just require you have to understand how you're going to train those those uh, skills. And uh, another thing that that we look at is we always want to train your weaknesses more than your strengths. Your weaknesses are are and again, people talk about team weaknesses and 
And team weaknesses are just players in specific positions or situations not being able to execute their skills at the required level for the team to succeed repeatedly. And so, you know, teams aren't bad at anything. And I've said this before, teams aren't bad at anything. The individuals within the team, they're having trouble executing the skills, their skills and doing their job. Therefore, the team is struggling. So, and another thing to think about is if when a team's weaknesses can be improved and strengthened through training, and also if you have to make changes. So, you know, one of the things I look at is I look at, I'll look at individual players, and, you know, a lot of times it's based on their experience or, you know, maybe it's just technical issues. And I can say, you know what, I, I can help this player get a lot better really quickly. Uh, and then you have situations where you know no matter how much you work with that player, you may have to make a change in your lineup. So that's another thing that you look at within your you know, as you build your team and, and building a team is always just building players and the ability of those players to execute. And it's just, I can't stress enough how important it is that you, as a coach, that you look at it that way, that you look at every, every asset for your team to be successful will ultimately succeed or fail on individuals within that group doing the job that they're supposed to do. So I, I think that's one of the keys. And so uh, if you look at your team and most importantly, each and every player through their analytical weaknesses, I mean, an analyze through that lens of what the weaknesses to their strengths are. Then you have a roadmap forward on how you want to plan your training, time and reps you want to allot to that training, give your team the best chance to grow and develop. And I've said this many times, it, it, it always comes down to repeatedly training the situations that are required for every player in every position to be successful. And then the team will succeed. And I think in closing, I want to I want to urge all coaches to be what I would call lifelong students and learners, and continue to challenge yourself to put a better product on the floor each and every season, and and always looking for ways to be more efficient, do more diligent, focused work. You know, hopefully this podcast has challenged you to look hard at the way you not only prepare your team, but more importantly, how you prepare your individual players, since a team is nothing more than a collective of individuals, each with a job to do, that when all put together will determine the end results of the entire group. Wishing everybody the best.